Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 18. On this Easter Friday, we are going to be hearing from Stephen Vance, who is continuing his series on the Psalms of Lament. In this episode, he'll be taking up Psalm 22, a very fitting chapter when we remember Jesus' death upon the cross. The title of Stephen's message is, Bear Your Heart. May these thoughts of lament bring us closer to our Lord, who suffered much on our account. It's Easter. Good Friday, the day of our Savior's death. And we're going to continue our exploration of the, the Psalms and look at one of the Psalms that our Savior quoted while on the cross, Psalm 22. And I've called this, Bear Your Heart, because it's an expression of pain as we read through this Psalm. And we're going to see that David was bearing his heart and exposing his pain as a result of an unknown life circumstance. And so he, he gives us permission to do the same in whatever situation we're in. But more importantly, we're going to meditate on our Lord's passion. So because of the length of the psalm, we're going to read it in sections and begin with the first uh, six verses. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Last time we introduced the Psalms, and I'm not going to go over that information, uh, various authors mainly David, and this is one of David's psalms, and various types of psalms, whether you know prayer, praise, uh, royal psalms glorifying the king. But then there's a type of psalm called lament psalms, psalms of sadness, where you bury your heart. There are many of them, and this is one of them. The psalm is in four sections that we'll look at as we go through. In the first section, one to five, uh, the lament is loneliness. The psalmist feels alone. In six to 11, the psalmist is lamenting, uh, feeling lowly, being taunted. And in the third section, 12 to 21, the psalmist is lamenting, being abused, hated. And in each of these three sections, the psalm, psalmist turns somewhere for hope. In the first section, when he's lonely, he turns to God's dealings in history. In the second section, in uh, lowliness, by being taunted, he turns to his personal upbringing. And then in the third section, as he's abused physically, he, all he can do is pray a desperate prayer for help. There's two things we need to see before we begin these psalms. We need to see that there are psalms that are messianic psalms. And we know they are that because they're quoted in relation to our Messiah, Jesus, in the New Testament. Often we apply psalms to the Lord Jesus, and of course, uh, we can devotionally enjoy that. But expositionally, we need to be cautious 
that it's the Spirit that gives us the liberty when he quotes the Old Testament Psalms and applies them to Jesus to show us that they are messianic. Psalm 22 is part of a trilogy of Psalms that are, are messianic. This one, of course, is quoted, as we'll note in a moment, and it's the song of Christ our sufferer. It's Christ on Good Friday, suffering on the cross in the past. Psalm 23, the next psalm, is the psalm of Christ as the shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's the song of Christ in the present as our shepherd. And this image is frequently ad adopted in the New Testament of Christ as our shepherd. The third one, Psalm 24, also quoted and alluded to in the New Testament, is the song of Christ as our sovereign, our Lord, our King, and it's his future kingly glory. He is the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory, James 2 and 1 Corinthians 2 tell us. But specifically this psalm, four times there are clear references in the New Testament to, us to, show, uh, to it to show us that it is messianic. Jesus himself quotes verse 1 on the cross, Why have you forsaken me? We see our Savior forsaken by God. Verses 7 and 8 say, All that see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads, saying he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. And of course, this is applied in Matthew, Mark, and Luke to the taunting that Christ uh, experienced on the cross. He's not just forsaken by God in this psalm. He's mocked by humans. But then verse 18 refers to his garments being divided and his clothing being gambled for. And this also is referenced in the New Testament in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so he is forsaken by God, mocked by humans, and made destitute by the Gentile soldiers. But the last reference in the New Testament to this psalm in relation to our Savior is positive, And it is his triumph, not forsaken, not mocked, not made destitute, but triumphant. In verse 22, we read, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And the Hebrew writer applies this to our Lord in the company of saints as he sings praise over his success at the cross. This psalm is a messianic psalm. But secondly, this psalm is a lament psalm. We're going to see this in relation to David and also in relation to the Lord. In it, there is sadness that honestly expresses loss and lament. We don't know the specific time, but David was obviously expressing his own lament in a time of personal distress. Maybe it was consistent with feelings he might have had as he was pursued by Saul or abandoned by Absalom. And what's important to see is that God doesn't cover this up. He exposes it in the scriptures. And I know in the church we're uh, inclined to be very uh, triumphal and sometimes there's a lot of positivism. You know, everything's good. We're winners all the way. It's going to work out. And that is true in the ultimate sense of God's kingdom. But sometimes it doesn't feel that way. And the Psalms of Lament allow us to acknowledge that. We know it's going to work out in the coming kingdom. But in between... We must find a way to accept things that are not good and are not winner situations. Sometimes we need to sit with sadness and stare it in the face and embrace it like Jesus did, the man of sorrows. Paul said it this way, rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't weep with those who are rejoicing. But then he added, weep with those who weep. Because to rejoice with somebody who's weeping 
just further augments their suffering. If we want to comfort one another, sometimes we have to face silence. I want you then to think about this messianic psalm of lament. And I've already outlined it for you, and I've showed you that it goes back and forth between lament and hope. And this, incidentally, is very common when people are in emotional turmoil. They go back and forth between hopelessness and hope. Let's explore David's experience and see how it applies to us, and then more importantly, see how it applies to the Lord. This first section I've called a lament of loneliness. And, and the lesson here is that when your trust is tested by the silence of God, pour out your heart and remember that he is still enthroned. David says, why have you forsaken me? Of course, David felt this way maybe when he was on the run, feeling all alone and attacked. And of course, we know that that God's people are, are never forsaken. Deuteronomy 31 and 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread, for it is the Lord, your God, who goes before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The New Testament says the same. Hebrews 13, the Lord will not forsake us. But sometimes it feels that way. And so in verse 2, the psalmist says, I'm up day and night crying out. There's this sleeplessness that often accompanies trial. And there's crying and groaning. You see, my brothers and sisters, these psalms show us that just like David, in a time of difficulty, it's not sinful to lament. Sometimes life is difficult, even terrifying. And we can bring our lament to God. Does he hear? Does he answer? He most definitely hears and answers, but sometimes his answer is, wait, I have a different plan. Paul had this experience in 2 Corinthians 12 when he asked three times for a particular situation to be taken away, but instead God assured him, my grace is enough. I'll walk with you through this and bring you to the other side. But when we come to our Lord's situation, how different it is from ours and David's. Because our Lord was truly alone. When he said, my God, why did you forsake me? There was no one to advocate. People had turned on him, the ones who had experienced his miracles. His disciples, who had followed so closely, had forsook. His family was not near. And now he is forsaken by God. And here we have the first clear messianic reference as Jesus quotes this psalm. He was alone for our salvation, that we might never be in the loneliness of hell. And verse 2, where he cries day and night, we remember on the cross there was the time that it was bright, and then there was the time when it was dark. And the Lord Jesus goes through it all. This is our Savior expressing his lament in loneliness. How did David make it through? How will we make it through? Verse 3 says, Lord, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. David's only resolution comes in God's greatness. Very similar to Job's experience. He brings his complaint to God, but it's finally resolved when he sees a God, a creator God of great power. Moses is the same. Psalm 90 
He complains, we are consumed by your anger. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. And Moses had secret sins, the murder of that Egyptian leader. But he brings his complaint to God and he opens by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And Moses had seen great mountains. He says, before the mountains were brought forth, you are God. He says, Sinai, Nebo, compare nothing to the greatness of God. He brings it to God. And that's what we do. We don't understand in our difficulty, but God is enthroned. And we bring our lament and our complaint and our difficulty to him. The psalmist here seems to account that sometimes looking to history and seeing how God has helped other people actually only accentuates my own grief. Sometimes we go through a trial and we share how God has comforted us and somebody else walking through a difficulty says, I, I haven't experienced that. And so we need to be careful how we share how God has carried us through. But in the psalmist's loneliness, he just turns to a God who is enthroned. So remember that. When your trust is tested by the silence of God, Pour out your heart in lament, and remember, he is still enthroned. This is what our Savior called out in his distress and passion and pain. But let's come to the second section now. Starting in verse 6, the psalmist says, I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Now we have not just loneliness, but we have lowliness. He is self-deprecating himself. And he's being taunted by others. And what does he do? He turns to his experience of childhood and sees his mother nurturing him. And behind that, he sees the Lord embracing him. Because when your trust is tested by the taunting words of people, cuddle in the arms of your heavenly Let's take a look at this and again apply it to David and ourselves and to Christ. You see, for David, this is this self-deprecation. I'm a worm. And what else do we see? We see he's focusing on the negative. He's scorned. He's despised. He's mocked. They're making mouths. They're wagging heads. And he says, all who see me, there's even a potential distortion there because there were some in David's camp. And you know, it reminds us that sometimes when people go through difficult experiences, sometimes they're inordinately negative, And it feels like they're exaggerating. This is common. Because when your trust is tested by taunting words, you do self-deprecate. You blame yourself and you exaggerate it in your mind. Beth Tanner, in commenting on this psalm, says it this way. It's because people are ashamed of, 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 of criticism and judgment, so they retreat. 
She says, you know, President Roosevelt hid his polio because he knew people would equate paralysis with weakness. AIDS patients suffer from terrible shame as they must face not only their disease, but the questions of how they got it. Many suffer the depression and hurt that comes from being, not being normal in a culture where health and vitality are prized. So the problem, of course, does not have to be sickness. Those who have been imprisoned or suffer from addictions or mental illness find the doors closed to full participation in society. Indeed, even the loss of a marriage or relationship leaves one feeling as if he or she has failed and is looked down on by the world. We don't know what David's experience was, or I don't know what your experience is, but, but this is common, blaming yourself, focusing on the negative, exaggerating it in your minds, because it's so hard to go through this in your own life. How do we do that? Well, for David, he begins to review his personal upbringing. It's very common when people are attacked, they sometimes go into the fetal position to protect themselves, and it's exactly what we see David doing here. Verse 9, he says, You took me from the womb. You made me hope at my mother's breast. He's, he's referring to this position of trust as a baby. And then verse 10, In childhood, you have been my God, from my mother's womb, all the way up, God, you've supported me. And verse 11, he says, be not far from me. He's remembering the support of his parent, but above that, remembering the support of God. And this is what happens. The first section taught us that when our trust is tested by the silence of God, pour your heart out in lament and remember he's enthroned. But now we're learning when your trust is tested by taunting words of others, cuddle in the arms of your heavenly Father. He's always loved you. He's cared for you. It reminds me of a story I read by Ron Lee Davis in his book, uh, Unforgiving World. And he tells about a, a pastor in the Philippines who carried the burden of a secret sin he had committed while in seminary. He had repented but had no peace. In his church, there was a, a woman who deeply loved God, but she claimed to have visions in which Christ spoke with her. And the pastor was a bit skeptical, so he said to her, you know, the next time you see Christ, I want you to ask him about a sin I committed while in seminary. And so the woman agreed to do it. A few days later, he, he asked her, you know, did Christ visit you? And he said, she said, yes, he did. And his, of course, interest peaked. He said, did you ask him the question? Yes, I did. And, and now he's really energized. He says, well, what did, what did he say? And the woman said, God said, I don't know what you did. I don't know what you did. And you know, sometimes we just need to relax and cuddle in the arms of our Heavenly Father and to realize that he loves us, that he forgives us, But as we look at this section, let's now think of it in relation to Christ, because we're at Easter. I am a worm and not a man, and I almost recoil, of course, to think of Christ in, in this way. Uh, it's certainly not uh, quoted about him in the New Testament. And although he never self-deprecated himself to see himself as a worm, we know from Philippians 2 he chose to be a servant and to humble himself. 
And as we read here about being scorned by mankind and despised by people, we remember Isaiah 53, a rejected of men. This was no distortion. And here in these verses, this is the second messianic reference because as, as, as it says in verse 7 that they're, they're, they're making mouths and wagging heads and mocking and, and saying, let God rescue him. It's this exact quotation that is quoted in Matthew 27 and other portions to describe those who mock the Lord Jesus at the cross. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires it. Oh, what our Savior went through at Easter. And how did he respond? I think it's beautiful to notice, like David, the childlike pose of the Lord Jesus. As he's going to the cross, he is, he is in the arms of his Father. On the way, in John 16, he says to his disciples, The hour is coming when you will be scattered and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. In Matthew and Mark, we have the cry of abandonment. My God, why did you forsake me? But not in John. In John, the relationship between the Father and the Son is so close and so tender. Those words would be incorrect without that. He's in the arms of his Father. Then, in the he again says, Abba, Father, all things are possible. The Father is his Abba. And while on the cross, as he's expiring his last breath, he calls with a loud voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so here we have our Lord. Oh, what a great Savior we have in his rejection and his alienation and his loneliness as his trust is tested by the taunting words of men. He rests in the arms of his heavenly. But let's come to the third lament section, beginning in verse 12. The psalmist says, Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now we have not just loneliness and verbal taunting abuse, but now we have hatred and animosity and physical abusive behavior. And what I want you to see is that when your trust is tested by the animosity and behavior of people, all you can do is, like David did, to plead with the Lord. Make your prayer to him. 
these enemies that we see in the life of David, and we can certainly trace at this Easter time in our heavenly David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of four of them. First of all, there are the bulls of Bashan in verse 12 that are encompassing. Bashan, of course, was on the east side of Jordan, had very fertile ground for strong cattle. And when we think of David's life, it was the people of Bashan that took Absalom in in 2 Samuel 14, the king of Geshur. And so they're on his side, and of course he was related to them. And so we can imagine the fear that David expresses if this was the same experience. Verses 12 and 13, his own son has been taken in by these, by these bulls of Bashan that are circling and encompassing. And what does he say? He says, they're opening wide their mouths. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. He's afraid. For Christ, bulls were a clean sacrifice. And so it reminds us perhaps of the Jewish leaders as opposed to the unclean Gentiles. And here they are encircling around him in their animosity and their viciousness. But not just bulls of Bashan in verse 12. We're told that they are like roaring lions. And of course, lions are the leader of the animal kingdom. And when we think of, of David, he had won real battles against real lions. But in this situation, these lions are fierce. Maybe it's the terrorizing rulers that he had faced in his youth as Saul chased him. Maybe it was other uh, rulers and kings against which he did war. Maybe it was his own son who's usurping the kingdom. But like lions, they are circling. And they are roaring. And they are raging. If you've ever faced an insurmountable enemy, you can probably relate to these feelings of fear in verses 14 and 15. Poured out like water, heart like wax, melted in your heart, strength dried up, laid down in the dust, of death. David had those feelings. Sometimes we have them and we can bring them in our prayer to God. Deliver me, O Lord. Do not be far off. But of course, all of this we see our Lord. And while the Gospels give us the, the facts of our Lord's death, these Psalms give us his feelings, what it was like for him to be alone. My God, why did you forsake me? What it was like to be taunted they're mocking me. They're despising me. And now what it's like to be attacked by the bulls, by the lions. But then in verse 16, we have the dogs. And we know, of course, the, 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 the dogs are seen as the outsider, the Gentiles. We remember in Matthew 15, Christ with the Syrophoenician woman. And he says that, you know, the children can eat the bread, but the, the dogs on the outside are not allowed. And these dogs, they, they may be less strong than the lions, but they are no less ferocious. And so we think, we think, for example, in David's life of all the, the foreign powers that attacked him. And when we come to Christ, we're thinking of the, the Gentile sword soldiers who pierced him. And of course, it's in this context that we have the third messianic reference. The soldiers that are dividing and gambling for his clothing. The New Testament writers see this see this as a fulfillment of this passage. But then we come to the last animal, not just the bulls, not just the lions, not just the dogs, but in verse 21, we have the horns of the wild oxen, of the unicorn, 
And we're thinking of these animals that would sort of get gore their prey and throw it back and forth. And we're thinking, for example, of, of, of difficult situations in, in David's life when he's being tossed around by Saul's assaults. But then we come even more significantly to Christ and he's before Pilate and Pilate has him impaled and then sends him off to Herod. And Herod does the same and then sends him back. All of these wild animals, fierce. They speak of all that our Savior has gone through, the animosity, the abuse that he experienced. And it's all in contrast to the title of the psalm, the doe of the dawn. So gentle, so defenseless against such fierce creatures. Our Savior has gone through so much for us. Let me just end this section by reminding you that this was initially David's experience. And through his experience, we've learned something about our own. Whatever you're in, whether it's loneliness, your strength is being tested by the silence of God, pour out your heart to him in prayer, in lament. You can bring your sadness to him and remember that he's still enthroned. Or maybe you're being taunted and your trust is being tested in that way. Do like David and cuddle in the arms of your Heavenly Father. Or maybe your trust is being tested by the animosity of others. And all you can do is pray. Pray David's prayer. Verse 19, do not be far off. Verse 21, save me. But my point for David and for you and for me, is that we can bring our sadness to God. Peter Slostra says it this way, you may have been told that big boys don't cry, and you may have felt the need to apologize for shedding tears in church. But Psalm 88 and Psalm 22 invite us to lament, and they encourage us to express our pain when our soul is full of trouble. In other words, you can cry before God. I hope that looking at this psalm of lament will help you to appreciate David's experience and in the light of that to better understand your own and to develop a language of lament to bring your sadness and complaint to God. But more importantly this Easter, I would like you to see the Lord Jesus since this is a messianic psalm. Let us remember him who went into that darkness, that loneliness. Him who was taunted and still rested in the arms of his father. Him who was bullied and abused and still put his confidence in the Lord. Because the end of this psalm shows us that a prayer for help changes into a prayer of trust. Just listen to these words. He says in verse number 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. He praises, Israel praises. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. David is writing this psalm after the trial had passed. And if we're in the trial, it may be hard to resonate with this. If you're in that, you may want to read Psalm 88 because it's all dark. 
and you'll be able to express your feelings there. But here, once God brings us through, we can declare his righteousness and his glory. And he goes on and he says, verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. He praises, his brothers praise, the whole congregation praises. Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Everybody praises. The lament ends. David brings his experience to the Lord and God works. All through this psalm, we've seen this. In verse 9, in his lament, he says, you brought me from the womb. In verse 15, while in the difficulty, he says, it's even you who has laid me in the dust of death. But now on the other side, David says, he's heard it. He's heard me. And being surrounded by menacing enemies is now exchanged for being surrounded by a worshipful community. We see how this happened in David's life. He's on the run from Saul, unable to cherish God's presence in Jerusalem. But now he's in the tent. He's praising the Lord. You know, there's been a wonderful thing, as I've met each week twice, with my local church fellowship in Agent Court, and we've praised and we've prayed, we've developed a prayer list, and we're praying over it together because we're going through our difficulties together. Our Savior had it much more difficult. He went through that loneliness, that taunting, that abuse alone. And he turned to God, and God forsook him. But he still made his prayer to the Lord. Now, as Hebrews quotes this passage, Hebrews 2.12 says, Jesus' words are, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This psalm is about the Lord Jesus. He has started the praise. And like it was with David, it expanded to his brothers, to the congregation, and to the entire world. So it is with the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The praise has begun. Good Friday has given way to Easter Sunday. And we will live. Christ went through the loneliness of alienation from family, friend, and Father God, as well as the lowliness and humiliation of verbal and physical abuse, much more than David or you or I could ever go. And his was for our redemption and salvation. And now, the other side of Good Friday, we have a sympathetic high priest. And in our loneliness and in our humiliation, we can bring our lament to one who understands and cares. He will bring us through. He will bring you through. And just like your Lord, you will stand in the midst of the congregation alongside your Lord and sing your praise.